Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Numbers 1, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families and their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies." With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. Fathers, we do study these things and look into this book. I pray that you would bless this study. As we often pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know what you have for us tonight. I thank you so much, Father. I am I'm greatly encouraged by my brothers and sisters here tonight, uh, braving the cold of this barn to be touched by your spirit and to hear from you and Lord I just pray that they will receive blessing upon blessing because of it that tonight would not be a night remembered for its coldness but for the power of your word the passion of your Holy Spirit so Lord we just submit ourselves to you and the teaching of your spirit tonight in Jesus name Amen now Sunday I said the book of Numbers draws its name from the first few words which is often the case in the Hebrew Bible uh, the Lord spoke Vayadabar Vayadabar now that is true in most of the cases but in some cases the book of Numbers is also called it's also called Bamidbar or Bamidbar B-E-M-I-D-B-A-R now this is just for you Wednesday night group the Sunday morning group they don't get these extra special little tidbits just you guys show you how special you really are the Hebrew name Bamidbar means in the wilderness. In the wilderness. So by some it's called the Lord's spoke, others call it in the wilderness, and I, I would imagine some Hebrews call it the Lord's spoke in the wilderness because all three are true. But it's important to recognize this because as we studied on Sunday, this is the book of wilderness wanderings. From here, the Israelites will leave out from Mount Sinai finally after being there for quite a while, and they will spend the rest of the book of Numbers in the wilderness. They will stay in the wilderness for, as you know, some 38 to 39 years before they finally cross over into the Promised Land. And this is the book that details that journey. It's the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. It's also the story, though, as we said Sunday, of the Pilgrim's Progress, for it's usually in the wilderness that we progress in our faith. God takes us into the wilderness. It's not always pleasant. And much of the time in our Christian lives, we find ourselves in those wilderness places wondering, Why, Lord? Why are you doing it? And it's only until we get to the other side of the wilderness, having limped along with the best amount of faith we can muster, sometimes it's very little faith, but as we get to the other side of the wilderness and come out of it, we can look back and say, Oh, it was about faith. You were growing me. You were progressing me. You were taking me to a new place. Okay, I need to make this clear. It's not the times when we see the promises fulfilled that our faith grows. By the time we see the promises fulfilled, our faith has already grown. We're already to the point where when we see the promise, we're ready for it because our faith has been taken to that place. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Speaking of the Old Testament faithful. It says, all these, now Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith. If you go through it, it's the name, several people named out of the Old Testament who had great faith. And after naming many of them, the Hebrew writer says, all these died in faith, with 
without receiving the promises. You see, their faith was not tied to the promise. The faith was what happened in their lives without the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's, that's their faith. They saw them from a distance. They didn't get them for themselves. In fact, the writer goes on to describe more great acts of faith. He even describes great persecutions. And then he says in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So even now as we study, as we look forward to these things and as we look back to the things of the Old Testament, those Old Testament saints who died in faith are still waiting. Waiting to be combined with us in that great and glorious moment when we're caught up to be with the Lord in heaven, waiting to receive the promise together. And as we wait in our lives, we're doing the same thing. Progressing in our faith, waiting until that moment when we can be joined together with the Old Testament faithful and receive the promises. It's not in the experience of the miraculous, but in the crucible of the wilderness that faith has grown. And then, and then we're ready for the miraculous. And then we're ready for healings. And then we're ready for God's glory to shine down and be all around us and among us because we've gone through that wilderness. I wonder often as we're studying these books why we hit them in the time that we hit them and what God's timing is with this and why are we in numbers right now and is it, Lord, that you're about to take the bridge through the wilderness? Is that where we're headed? Maybe so. Maybe not. It may be two, three, four people in this fellowship who need this study because they personally are in the wilderness. I would imagine probably every one of us at some point are going to hit the wilderness while we're in the book of Numbers. And so know that God is working in us. He is sculpting and chiseling our faith. He's fashioning our faith, transforming our language into the language of eternity, which we've said before is faith. Faith is the language of eternity. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So don't forget as we read on, God's primary concern is not our comfort here on earth, it's our consecration for eternity. Michael Card several years ago uh, wrote an album, did a whole entire album that I believe is called In the Beginning, if I'm correct. And every song in the album was taken from one of the first five books of the Torah. And so the fourth song on the album is called In the Wilderness. It's the song based on the book of Numbers. And in the course of the song, he sings, In the Wilderness, in the wilderness, he calls his sons and daughters to the wilderness. But he gives grace sufficient to survive any test. And that's the painful purpose of the wilderness. John 16.33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. And in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's a great verse. Don't worry about it. I've been through it. I overcame it. You will too. We're going to get you to the other side of the wilderness. Well, again, we introduced the book on Sunday. Also talking about leadership in verses 5 through 19. Looking at men who shall stand with you. We're going to look at more at that this next Sunday. And uh, we'll continue there. But for right now, tonight, let's skip on down to verse 20. And we'll roll on as our study continues. Verse 20. Chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, verse 20. Now the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. 
Their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. 46,500. You know what? Hang on. Because before we get into Reuben and all the other guys and the numbering and everything else, let me give you some things here tonight. I'm going to give you four things to jot down if you're a note taker. Four things to know that will drive through in Numbers 1 and 2. And the first one, quickly, is the outline of the book. The outline of the book. I'm also going to give you the omnipotence of the Lord, the office of the Levites, and finally, the order of the camp. The outline of the book, the omnipotence of the Lord, the office of the Levites, and finally the order of the camp. Isn't that neat how they all start with O's? <laughs> As impressed? I mean, this is, you know. Anyway, okay, so the outline of... I work hard on this stuff. Okay, we need another O word. Anyway, the outline of the book. Three sections to outline the book of Numbers. What an idiot. To outline the book of Numbers. And, and here are the three sections. If you're jotting this down, Numbers chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 10 is section number one. You could call that the final preparation. The final preparation. Again, they've been at uh, Sinai roughly a year as they received the laws and ordinances of Exodus and Leviticus. Now, over a period of 20 more days. So these first 10 chapters are going to cover just 20 days. And during that time, Israel gets her marching orders. God prepares Israel. The camp goes through final inspection as they get ready to head out in their wilderness march. So Numbers 1 through 10, verse 10 is the final preparation. Numbers 13, I'm sorry, Numbers 10, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 through Numbers 21, verse 9. Numbers 10, 11, verse 21 through 21, 9. The failures of a nation. The failures of a nation. So we have the final preparation, part 1, part 2, the failures of a nation. And the beginning in verse 10 of chapter 21, through the end of the book, chapter 36, we will see the next generation. The next generation. Final preparation, the failures of a nation, and the next generation. That's the outline of the book, and we'll kind of follow that, and I'll remind you of it as we go through this study. So that's the outline. Secondly, in our notes tonight, the omnipotence of the Lord. Let's look now at the uh, scriptures. So verse 21 tells us, as we just read, the number of men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Okay? Let's get down to verse 23. Because each one of these verses is repeated as we go. Verse 23 says, The numbered men of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Verse 25, The numbered men of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Verse 27, The numbered men of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Verse 29, the numbered men of the tribe of Issachar, 54,400. Of the sons of Zebulon, verse 31, 57,400. Verse 33, the numbered men of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Of the tribe of Manasseh, verse 35, 32,200. Of Benjamin, verse 37, 35,400. Of Dan, in verse 39, 62,700. Verse 41, the tribe of Asher, their number of men were 41,500. Verse 43, the number of men of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. Verse 44, reading on, these are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each of whom was of his father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel... Even all the numbered men were 603,550. Rick, why did you take the time to read all those numbers? I'm not sure I'm feeling uplifted just yet in this study. 
The numbers are important. The numbers are there for a reason, and hear me clearly, and Marianne, I'm answering your email right now, okay, so be prepared. The numbers are accurate. Exactly as written. These are the numbers. What do you mean? Several years ago, a famous Egyptologist, a man by the name of Dr. Melvin Grove Kyle, figured out the following. He figured that with 603,550 able-bodied fighting men, ages 20 and over, there would have to be at least 400,000 women. Which is kind of a bummer if there's 600,000 men and 400,000 women. Men, are you with me? Can I get an amen to that? But he's saying at least there would have to be a minimum of 400,000 women to 600,000 able-bodied fighting men. 200,000 senior citizens and then 800,000 children at a minimum. Furthermore, we're told in Scripture that there was a mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt with the sons and daughters of Israel. A mixed multitude, non-Israelites... Oh, I saw my breath. It is getting cold. <laughs> did you ever used to do that as a kid? Pretend you were smoking and go... Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Wait, where is Hank? There you are. You study first aid for hypothermia? Okay. We should be all right then. <laughs> all right. So rolling on. Add all this together. Add in that mixed multitude. Let's just add 100,000 people. It could have been much more than that, but that's probably a conservative estimate. All of that totaled up comes to 2,100,000 people, and that does not include the entire tribe of Levi. Which is why the number we've thrown out on occasion is 3 million. 3 million people, 3 million Israelites coming out of Egypt led all the way across the desert. 3 million, and that is a conservative estimate. It could have been upwards of 4 or 5 million people. Really? How could this be? How is that possible? Several million people tromping through the wilderness together. I couldn't even keep three kids together Christmas shopping in the mall. And we're talking three million plus. How is that possible? This numbers question gang has been raised, especially by critics of the scriptures. It amazes me how quickly, not just the critics, but the proponents of scripture, try to find a way to make it work. Instead of just saying, it is what it is. That's what it says. It says 603,550 able-bodied fighting men, so that's the number. Well, that's an awfully big number. So we've got some problems. How do we deal with this? The Bible Knowledge Commentary addresses the question head on. It says, the problem from the human standpoint is obvious. How could millions of people have gotten organized, maintained their cohesion, and traveled through the deserts frequently on narrow routes and difficult terrain? And the answer to the question is in the beginning of the question itself. I'll read it to you again. The problem from a human standpoint is obvious. Of course it is. From a human standpoint, most of what happens in Scripture is problematic, is challenging. We look at it and we say, how, Lord? How is it possible? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Some versions translate that to him who is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Now again, I can imagine three million people wandering through the desert led by the Lord. And yet he can do far more than I can even imagine. Why do we question Listen, whenever I attempt, whenever we attempt to dial down Scripture to a human standpoint, to the realm of human possibility, we dismiss the Lord's omnipotence. 
The omnipotence of the Lord. That power. That all-powerful nature of God. Let me say this clearly. If God is not all-powerful, then He is not God. If there is some chink in the armor, if there's something about God, a weak spot, then He's not God. Because in my heart as a human being, I can, I can imagine, I can aspire to, I can believe that there is something that is absolutely the epitome of power out there. I can believe that. For some reason, my heart says, yes, there must be. And so I submit to you that if God, as, as we read about Him in the Scriptures, and I'm going to tread lightly here, but if God has some major flaw that we just haven't heard about yet, He's not God. There is one greater. There is one more powerful. Now the only reason I can say that is because I know that the Lord God, Jehovah, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. And with God, nothing is impossible. Three million people through the desert? No big deal. This is the same God who called something out of nothing. The same God who created the world in six days. Oh, you believe in the six little days? Yes, I do. Why? Because God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do it. Jeremiah says it this way. I love this. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God. And then we're told in verse 26 of Jeremiah 32, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? No. It amazes me again when Bible scholars even will attempt to look at this large head count and explain away the Bible as written. They do it this way. A couple things that I've seen. Maybe the thousands are actually the number of clans in each tribe and the hundreds are actual fighting men. You see, the way that would work out is, again, if you look back... At, at Reuben, 46,500, there are some who have posited that the 46,000, the 46 is the number of clans in Reuben, and the 500 is the actual number of fighting men. Trying to make it palatable, easier, readable. The problem is that other passages in Scripture corroborate 600,000 plus fighting men. There are other places it's talked about. In fact, nine months earlier than where we're reading right now, the Lord called for another census among the men of Israel for the purpose, not this time of war and fighting, but for the purpose of collecting the atonement money for the tabernacle. I'll read this to you. Exodus 38, verse 26. He asked for a bika ahead. A bika is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. You know they still use shekels in Israel today? Isn't that great? I'm going to bring home a bunch of shekels just so I can say I got shekels. Anyway, a peak ahead for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward, 603,550. Same number. Moses uses the number in Exodus for the counting for the atonement money. He uses the same number now in Numbers for the counting of the fighting men. Same number. It's corroborated in two different places and it's corroborated throughout Scripture and we will see that toward the end of Numbers as well. Some others say, well, maybe the thousands are just a goof-up. Chalk it up to human error. Maybe somewhere down the line in all the translating of the scriptures and the rewriting of the scriptures, maybe one of the scribes added some zeros to make it sound more wow. Maybe it just was smaller. Someone made a mistake. 
That's a big one that's talked about, especially in the non-believing world and in the seminary world, or the cemetery world, as we probably should call it. The problem here, gang, when you look at the Bible and say, maybe the Bible that we hold is not what it was when it was originally written. Maybe there have been some ultimate changes. The problem is not human error, it's human arrogance. It's human arrogance. The word, gang, is not man-assembled, it's God-breathed. It's very clear about that. That's what the Bible claims for itself anyway. It's not man-assembled. This is not a book. Forty authors, yes, forty authors inspired by God to write what God wanted written, not made up by forty different guys across, you know, three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, who just happened to put together a book that is so intricately interwoven, no genius could do it by himself. We couldn't do it tonight. If we sat down and said, let's just write a story together, and each one of us are going to take two and a half pages, we're going to write it tonight, and then stick it together and see how it goes. We couldn't even come close to the depth and the power of God's Word. The Word is not man-assembled, it's God-breathed. Now, I'm going to give you a little uh, early... um, comment about the Da Vinci Code right here. Let's finish reading it. Tick me off. In some places. And in other places, it was a fascinating fiction book. And that's the thing you got to remember. It's a fascinating fiction book. Here's some lines out of it. One of the characters says, More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Well, who chose the Gospels? Who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Aha, T. Bing burst in with enthusiasm. The fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible, as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Eh, thanks for playing, you're wrong. Not even close. Listen to this, gang. Paul's letters were already collected and viewed by the church as inspired by the end of the first century. By the end of the first century, so around 85, 90, 95, the church was already passing around a collated version of Paul's letters. Furthermore, by 150 AD, the four Gospels, as we see them today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were collected as part of what's called the Canon of Scripture. By 150. Does anybody know when Constantine came into power? 312. 312. 150, 162 literally years earlier, before Constantine was in power, there was already a canon of scripture that contained some of Paul's letters and the four gospels. By the way, that word canon is the Greek word canon, canyon, and it literally means measuring rod. The canon of scripture is simply the measuring rod by which books were considered to be God-inspired, God-breathed. And in around 177 AD, an early church leader by the name of Irenaeus said, quote, There can be no other Gospels but these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the way, by the way, and this is very cool, there is internal, internal biblical evidence for these four Gospels being the only four Gospels, which I'm going to show you in a little bit tonight. Hopefully not too much longer. But by 200 A.D., now we're still 112 years before Constantine came along, who Dan Brown, in the Da Vinci Code, said, put together the Bible as we know it today. Eh, thanks for playing. By 200 A.D., still well over a century before Constantine, Christians in Rome recognized what is called the Muratorian Canon, the Muratorian Standard, the Muratorian Bible. This Bible included... The Old Testament, plus the four Gospels, the book of Acts, all of Paul's letters, James, 1 and 2 John, Jude, and Revelation. 112 years before Constantine even came into power. 
So Dan Brown's fictional characters in his fictional story make blatantly fictional statements. So it's a lot of fiction. Turn in your Bibles just for a moment to Second Peter. Second Peter, toward the end of the New Testament. Second Peter in chapter one. Peter puts this so well. Second Peter chapter one and verse sixteen. I just want you to follow along and read this. This is a section of Scripture where you can do all kinds of underlining because it's so encouraging what Peter says and so important as to the veracity of Scripture, the truth, the measuring rod of Scripture. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, this is Peter speaking, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. As if to say, as if Peter looking down the line at idiots like, I'm sorry, at scholars like Dan Brown, he, he looks ahead and says, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't come up with cleverly devised tales. We didn't make up a story. No, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. By the way, in the New Testament canon, one of the standards that was held was, did this man see Jesus? Was this man alive at the time? Did he walk with Jesus? One exception to that is Luke, Dr. Luke, who, well, no, even Luke, I believe, was there at the time, but he interviewed and talked to and drew his gospel from those who had been with Jesus. So Peter says, We're eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus up on the mountain. Going on, he says in verse 19, So we have the prophetic word And some of your Bibles add the word made. It's not there. I like to read it without it. So we have the prophetic word more sure. To which you would do well. To pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And you may say well okay. I'll accept that. I'll accept that the original scriptures were God breathed. Inspired by God. The prophets didn't make it up. He told the prophets and they wrote what he said. However, couldn't they have just gotten corrupted over time as the scribes passed them on? Isn't it possible that what we have is not what God intended? That the scribes trying to follow the pattern of the church in different time periods changed some things. Here's the deal, and it's just a thought. Do we really think that down through history this omnipotent God if he is God would leave his word to that kind of chance now I know I'm asking for a little bit of faith here but if you believe that God is God the next step is to believe that his word is his word and the next step is just to believe that his word is exactly the word that he wants us to have if he's God is he not capable of protecting his word and this is not even to go into the 5,900 5, different copies, old copies of the Bible going all the way back some to literally 150 A.D. Not entire copies, but there's fragments that go back that far. And as they're compared and looked at, 
The only changes, the only differences that are seen are spelling errors on occasion. But even the words are the right word, just with a misspelling. The Bible's the Bible. And I submit to you that even when we look at the numbers like we just saw, 603,550, that that is it. That's the number. Not smaller, not easier, but 603,550. Yes, several million people were led out of Egypt, up to the Sinai, out into the wilderness, and eventually to the promised land. And gang, if God couldn't do that, He's not God. God couldn't leave those people out and bring them to the land. He is not God. If He can't protect His word across time, He's either not paying attention or He's not God. But gang, He has paid attention. He does pay attention. And He is the Lord. So the omnipotence of God is important as we approach Scripture to recognize. Either believe it or you don't. And if you don't, then you need to throw the whole thing out. You can't just take a little. It's the whole thing or none at all. Well, number three in our outline, the office of the Levites. Let's move on. Verse 47. Verse 47. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. The Levites had a special office. They had a special role, a special task. And here in the office of the Levites, we see something, something of God's invitation to a very precious place. We sang tonight, let my life be like a love song. Let my life flow like a love song. Let my focus, Lord, be about you. The words I speak, the things I say, the things I do, let it resonate like a love song. In other words, Father, I want to serve. I want to be like you. And that's what the Levites were about. But you need to remember that before the Levites were called into priestly ministry, the entirety of Israel was called to be a priesthood. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak, God says to Moses, to the sons of Israel. These are the words that you shall speak. But as Israel, the people, lost that opportunity, they lost that opportunity. Remember the golden calf, when they made that molten calf, they gave it up, they blew it, they lost that call to the priesthood. The Levites were given the priesthood. The Levites who in that day, at that time, stood with God, they were given the priesthood. They became then the priests for all of Israel. Again, the Levites are a picture of the priesthood that God ultimately wants us to be. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 tells us, Worthy are you, speaking to the Lamb, to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not just the Levites, not just the Jews. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. Let me give you a little insight. That verse, Revelation 5, 9 and 10, is a quote of you and me in heaven praising God for our redemption. So we will be a priesthood. We have been called to be that priesthood. 
And if you want to move closer to the Lord, and this is what I want you to really see here with the Levites, if you want a front row seat to the experience of God's glory, if you want to be numbered as one of the royal priesthood of believers, you've got to do something. One thing, one vastly important thing, you've got to enter the ministry. You've got to enter the ministry. You've got to sign up. Now, I'm not talking about professional ministry. I'm not talking about being a pastor or a paid bishop or a rector. I don't think I could be in the Episcopal Church just because of what they call their pastors. I couldn't be a rector. I just, I, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't do it. What, what, if, what do Episcopal pastors give their children? Rector sets? Sorry. No offense for anyone with an Episcopal background, but it's just, you know, I remember pulling into a little Episcopal church in Middletown, Virginia, when we lived out on the East Coast. Pulling in, it was a really cool church, and we kind of went inside, and we looked around, and, and, you know, they had these, uh, this is the way it was set up, it was so old, it was like 200 years old, which for me was really old at the time. And then going around out back and seeing the parking spots, and there was a spot, and it just said Rector on it. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Sorry, I digress. But anyway, you I'm not talking about being a priest, being a paid clergyman, being a man of the cloth. I'm talking about entering the ministry. And Jesus puts it this way, Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. In fact, he says, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of, standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. By your standard, in other words, what you give out... That's what's going to be measured back to you. And this applies to what we're talking about. The more you minister, the more you serve, the more you seek to be like the Levites in their priestly service, the more is going to come back to you. That sounds kind of like quid pro quo. No, it's much greater than that because you're going to get more back than you put out. I guarantee it. The Bible promises that. You want to experience God? You want a life? David, you want a life where you're just on the edge for Him? Aware, moment by moment, of what He's doing? Then you enter the ministry. You engage in the work of the church, in the work of the body, in the fellowship of believers. You be about the business of other people and the business of the Lord. It's not a vague spiritual promise, gang. It's an actual fact. If you want to give more, serve more. Love more. But what exactly does that mean, to enter the ministry? Can you give me a picture of that? Well, we happen to have one right here, coincidentally. Look at verse 50 again. He says, You shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle, so that when the Levite, so when the tabernacle, sorry, is set, set out, is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. <laughs> That's an interesting picture there. The Levites are about the business of the tabernacle. They're putting it together, they're taking it down, they're working on it. But the layman who comes near is put to death. Which gives me a real interesting picture here. The Levites know what's going on. The Levites on a Sunday morning in worship would be engaged in the worship because, man, they're engaged in the service. But the layman, the person who says, I'm not going to engage in ministry, this is all about me, they're often the people who tend to die in the service. They're the ones who kind of think church is dead. They're the ones sitting back going, oh, how much longer? He's doing another song. Oh. 
He's only halfway through the list of verses. Do you see that? Do you see that? He's killing me. Yeah, the lay person. They come here. They'll be put to death. So, verse 52. So the sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard according to their, to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. They literally were buffers between God and the rest of the people. These ministers, these servants. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Four things here that you can see the Levites did. Number one, they carried the tabernacle. They carried the tabernacle. Number two, they care for the tabernacle. Number three, they camped around the tabernacle. And number four, they kept the charge of the tabernacle. And if you missed any of those, they're right here in the passage. Verse 50 says they carry, they care for, and they camp. Verse 53 says they keep charge of. So I didn't have to think up those seeds. They're all right there in the scriptures. I love when that happens. What might, though, the tabernacle be a picture of for us today? It's the church. It foreshadows. It gives us a glimpse of the church. The church. Now, I'm not talking about the church in terms of a building or a barn or a place where people gather. I'm talking about the people themselves. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, We are coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We are the tabernacle, as it were. We are the temple. Not only are we the priesthood in the temple, but we're the temple itself. We're the building blocks God is using to build His eternal temple. And I believe that I believe that I believe that it is in the church that we can and will experience to the greatest degree, at least in this age, the presence and glory of God. I honestly believe, folks, and I think the Bible testifies to this, that the more we seek to find God outside of the church, the less we see God. But the more we seek to find Him within the church, even with its flaws and foibles and problems, even with all of our sin kind of hanging out, God wants to manifest His glory here in the body, in the fellowship of believers. He wants to show us His wonders among us. And so they carried the tabernacle. They carried the tabernacle. That was the purpose of the Levites. They lifted up and they carried it in the same way that we are called the servant hearts to lift up and carry the body of Christ. To lift up and carry each other. Paul says Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You know if you're busy bearing someone else's burdens you have a lot less time to lick your own wounds. Bear one another's burdens. Romans 15 verse 1, Paul said, Now we who are strong, we who are strong, so if you think you're strong, listen to this application, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Strong, bearing with the weak, bearing one another's burdens, just as the Levites would bear the tabernacle from place to place as they journeyed in the wilderness. But far too many people are seeking to be carried themselves. Those in ministry gang, those who have entered the ministry that you are called to enter, lift up the hearts of the congregation around them. The Levites also cared for the tabernacle. That was their, their protection. They protected it. They looked after it. They kept it clean. They kept it looking right. As they carried it, they carried it exactly the way God prescribed. And we see later in, in I believe it's 1 Samuel, 
2 Samuel chapter 6. We see later where King David, and when they were bringing the, the tabernacle, actually the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it in the wrong way, and we see what happens there. A tragedy strikes. There were specific ways to carry all the implements in the tabernacle and to take care of them. They looked after the needs. It was their job of protection, their role of protection. And entering the ministry is doing the same thing. I love this, Mark chapter 6, verse 35. When it was already quite late, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send the people away so they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. In one line, Jesus encapsulates the role of the church. You feed them. Don't send them away. Don't tuck them out the door and say, hey, go, be filled and be warm. No, you fill them. You warm them. You care for their needs. You protect the body of Christ. You do the ministry. Number three, they camped around the tabernacle. Camping around the tabernacle, that was their position. Their position. If anything special was going to happen, gang, if the Spirit of God was going to move out or pour out, the Levites were the first to know. I found that to be the case in the church as well. Those who are closest to the Lord, those who are serving, tend to be the first ones to pick up that God's doing something. They're the ones who are saying, Hey, hey, look at what's God, what God's up to here. We're sensing a, a moving, a, a new direction. Those who are in ministry, those who are not, remember the dead people sitting around going, Oh, much longer. They're the ones who have no clue what God's going to do. And they're also the ones who tend to say, God, when are you going to do something? That's not me. What is that, Danny? There we go. Alright, so they camped around the tabernacle. That was their position. And number four, they kept the charge of the tabernacle and the testimony, we're told. Look again. In the end of verse 53, the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. The tabernacle of the testimony. What's the testimony? What is the testimony? I know it's cold and your brains are starting to get blue on you, but what what's the testimony? Can you guess? It's, it's inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ten Commandments. Yeah. The tabernacle of the testimony is the Ten Commandments. Literally called the tent of the Ten Commandments. That's what tabernacle means. The tent, the dwelling place of the testimony of the Ten Commandments. And so, their charge was to keep it. To keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony... And this was their passion game. Listen to this. The tabernacle and the testimony. The tabernacle is that picture of worship. And the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that picture of the Word of God. The role of the Levites, the ministers of God, was to care about worship and the Word. That would be their passion. Worship and the Word. The lives of the Levites then were to revolve around the tabernacle of the congregation. They carried it. They cared for it. They camped around it and they kept charge of it, the tabernacle and the testimony. And so one more time, if you want closeness to the Lord, if you want to experience God and the blessings that surround Him, enter the ministry. Serve. Engage. Let your passion be lifted from yourself and placed in and among the living stones, which is the church. Number four, and we'll finish tonight. But we have a whole chapter, Rick. Just watch. (laughs) Number four, the order of the camp. The order of the camp. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard. With the banners of their fathers' households, they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now those who camp on the east side, toward the sunrise, shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. The camp of Judah. Skip on down. That's also going to include, verse, in verse 5, it tells us Issachar. It also will include, verse 7 tells us, Zebulun. And the total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies, and they shall set out first. Judah was a camp. Those of you who studied Revelation, we, we went through this somewhat recently. The camp of Judah included Judah, it included Issachar, and Zebulun. Three tribes, one camp. Three tribes, one camp. So that little section of scripture, the total, 186,400, and this was the camp of Judah, even though it included Essachar and Zebulon, this was the camp of Judah, and they camped on the east side of the tabernacle. That's important. Remember that. Verse 10 tells us, on the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben. The camp of Reuben. So you've got camp of Judah on the east. You've got camp of Reuben now on the south side of the tabernacle. And camp of Reuben included the tribe of Reuben, included, verse 12, the tribe of Simeon. And it included, verse 14, the tribe of Gad. Verse 16 tells us the total of the numbered men of the camp of Reuben, 151,450 by their armies. So the camp of Reuben. Reuben camped on the south. The standard of Reuben, the camp of Reuben, it included Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. They were on the south side of the tabernacle. Continue on. Verse 17. By the way, this is also given in the order that they head out when they begin to march. Judah first. Camp of Judah first. Camp of Reuben second. The Levites third. Verse 17. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp, just as they camp, so they shall set out every man in its place by their standards. Interesting. Two camps go first. Then right in the middle of the marching crew comes the Levites with the tabernacle and all the implements there. And then the last two camps come behind them. So the tabernacle remains in the middle even as they march. Hear the order of God? It's very clear, very specific. Verse 18, now we get to the west side. So this would be directly opposite the east side, Judah in the east. Now on the west side, called the camp of Ephraim, verse 18. Verse 19 tells us that in addition to Ephraim, it's Manasseh and Benjamin. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. But they're all three called the camp of Ephraim. And verse 24 tells us the total of the numbered men of the camp of Ephraim, 108,100 by their armies. This is important. I know it's a lot of numbers, but stick with me, gang. So that's uh, Ephraim on the west side. And finally we get to the last camp on the north side, directly across from Reuben's camp, across the tabernacle, is the camp of Dan. The camp of Dan. It's called the camp of Dan, but it includes Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Those three tribes, one camp, the camp of Dan. And the total of the numbered men of the camp of Dan was 157,600, verse 31 tells us. Then verse 32 tells us these are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household. The total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies, again, 603,500. What's the big deal? Listen, this is a massive campsite. The order of the camp was huge. It was one big, huge, well-ordered march. There was no disarray here. God laid out exactly where they were to march, how they were to march, what order they were to march, and then when they stopped, exactly how they were to be set up around the tabernacle. Around the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 14.33 gives us insight. It says, God 
is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14 tells us all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And J. Vernon McGee, looking at this passage, says the following. He says, no group ever marched more orderly than this group. This is God's method. He is a God of order. Have you ever pulled aside the petals of a rose and looked deeply into it? Have you ever noticed the shape of a tree? Have you ever noted the orderly arrangement of every piece of fruit and vegetable you pick up? Have you ever observed the orderliness of this universe? Things are not flying around, bumping into each other. Look around, we see a world that has a significant order to it. Not the random, chaotic chance of, say, evolution, but an order to things because God is a God of order. And so he orders Israel, gives them their camps, gives them their marching orders. Now, as many of you know by now, and think about this, it's very cool. You can look at the numbers and figure this out. Judah to the east. Let's say the tabernacle is here. Judah will be on the east side of the tabernacle. It is the largest camp. Ephraim, across on the west, was the smallest camp. And then Reuben to the north and Dan to the south were equal, almost equal in size. So that if you look down from an aerial view on the camp of Israel when they were camped, what you saw as they camped perpendicular to the tabernacle was a huge cross. Which I think is just incredibly cool. Because what that tells us is that the people of Israel were encamped in the cross. They were encamped in the cross. And God invites you and He invites me to do the same. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross. The cross. Now I'm going to give you two final things and we'll finish tonight. Number one, the cross. The cross repels the curse. The cross repels the curse. Now if you're getting a little frosty, Hang in there because this is the best part. The cross repels the curse. We're going to see in Numbers 22 through 24, those three chapters in there, we're going to meet a nefarious character named Balaam. A crafty seer, a prophet in his own right, and yet not a very, uh, a pretty unscrupulous man. Not a lot of integrity. We're not going to go there and look at this whole story tonight. That's coming up soon. But suffice it to say that Balaam was called upon by King Balak to pronounce a curse on Israel. He was called upon to, to, to give this curse, but what's amazing and wonderful to watch in this story is the more he tried to curse Israel, the more blessing flowed out of his mouth. Every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, blessing poured out. But listen to this, Numbers 24 verse 2 tells us, Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel, the Bible tells us, camping tribe by tribe. Balaam is up on a high mountain and looking down on the camp of Israel. What Balaam would have seen when he was up on that mountain trying to curse Israel was the cross. But as long as Israel was encamped in that cross, Balaam couldn't touch him. In fact, all he could do was bless him. It tells us he saw Israel camping tribe by tribe and the Spirit of God came upon him and he opened up his mouth and blessing just poured out onto Israel. The passage tells us, gang, that Balaam could not curse the cross. The cross repels the curse. And we appeal, we appeal to the atoning blood of Jesus. 
Even now, in this life, the atoning blood of Jesus on the cross, repelling the very curse of sin and the demonic influence that would seek to harm and to hurt or to discourage or to dissuade. And I was asked this morning by my friend Les, who loves to ask me challenging questions and break me out. He asked me, Rick, do you believe in the healing power of the atonement? Set me back on my heels for a minute. I had to really think about that. Do you believe in the healing power of the atonement? Where are you going with this, Les? <laughs> what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to heal me of my receding hairline? What's going on? The atoning power. Do you believe, Rick, in the healing power of the atonement? And the answer is, yes, I do. Well, what does that mean? The healing power of the atonement. What exactly does that mean? Listen, Isaiah 53, verse 4. I've got to share this with you. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. And translated accurately, the word griefs is sicknesses, and the word sorrows is pains. Surely our sicknesses, physical sicknesses, ailments, He Himself bore. And our sorrows, our pains... He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And listen, the chastening of our well-being, you could say our health, (laughs) fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. It is because of the atoning blood of Jesus at Calvary that the curse of sin is repealed among us and we can be healed and yes, I believe absolutely physically healed. And the reason, gang, that physical healing happens in the world today as much as it did 2,000 years ago, the reason why this is a legitimate thing, why the gift of healing, by the way, from the Holy Spirit is a legitimate gift is because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Because as the writer Isaiah tells us that our griefs, our sicknesses, our sorrows, our pains, he carried to the cross. And in that atonement, we receive that healing. You might say, but Rick, what about those people who were atoned for but never healed? What about those who we know, we know, were saved? Lana, what about Barry? If I can be bold. And I don't mean to make you cry, but I have to share that in seeing Barry in the last few weeks of his life, this is a man who was captured by Jesus. This is a man whose sins were atoned for. But this is a man who did not receive physical healing, though it was prayed for. So you might say, well, wait, okay, Rick, we got a problem. You say you believe in the healing power of the atonement. So if Jesus atoned for our sins and our sicknesses and everything else on the cross, shouldn't we be able to be healed? Listen, and understand that no matter how great the miraculous healing, even if we were to experience, and I would love to experience one day, a raising from the dead, because we are still in a fallen world, it's only temporary. It's only temporary. Now, gang, at the bridge, we will pray for healing. We will seek the healing of those who have disease, of those who have hurts, of those who have cancer on them. We will seek for healing and pray for it and cry out to the Lord for it because the Bible tells us to. But understand this, even when that happens, God knows it's still only temporary. Lazarus, though raised from the dead, still died again. 
Jairus' daughter, though raised from the dead, still died again. Every single person Jesus healed, the blind men who received their sight, the deaf who received their hearing, the lame who could jump and leap and walk and praise the Lord, all died. Which is the ultimate disease, death. It's only temporary when healing does happen. Well, why does God let some people be healed and other people not be healed? I submit to you that Mary received the greatest healing. That there is an element of envy in the heart of a believer when we watch another believer go home. That's healing. That's ultimate healing. Yes, the atonement provides for healing in this world, in this life, today. But the atonement provides, and don't ever miss this, for the ultimate healing, which is life eternal with the Father. And we don't always understand why God works in the way He does, but we come right back to that word of faith we were talking about before. We trust the Lord to do what's best. And we offer and cry out to Him for healing. And we believe that healing is not just possible, it can happen, it will happen because of the atoning blood of Jesus. But when it doesn't, does it shake my faith? Not in the least. Because this healing is temporary. That healing is eternal. That's the healing I'm looking for. Ultimately, that's the one we want. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read very quickly. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul is writing, he says the following, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us, or to us. And he says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. So again, doesn't matter how many times you get healed, doesn't matter how many times someone's raised from the dead, there's a futility in it as long as we're in this age because we will still get sick, we will still die. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also are ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves spirit filled people groaning yes Paul says we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body the adoption and the redemption well, wait 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 Rick didn't, didn't we receive the adoption already I, I thought John said John chapter 1 didn't he say that we receive adoption as sons and I thought when I came to Jesus, I was redeemed. Didn't I receive redemption in my body? Yes and no. You received adoption. You received redemption. But you are also waiting for adoption and waiting for redemption. The best scenario, the best example I can give you is little Leticia D'Angelo. Leticia, adopted by Jeff and Penelope D'Angelo from Bolivia, they brought her home. She was their daughter. She knew no different that in the days and weeks and months after her coming home to live with Jeff and Penelope, she just became their daughter. But there was a day, months after she came home, months after she was adopted, there was a day when the adoption papers arrived. And she was fully adopted. And that's all we're waiting on. We're adopted by the Father. We are His sons and daughters. We're the children of God. But that full adoption, the adoption papers, they're still to come. When's that, Rick? When he calls us. When we go home. 
the adoption papers will finally be here. You are no less adopted now than you will be then, but then, then the world will be completely different. So healings today, gang, they're the direct result of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. But if you're healed of one ailment, raised from one death, sickness and death still remain in the world until our adoption and our redemption are complete. Which is why Jesus, I believe, says in Luke 21, verse 27, Then they will see the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your head because your redemption, your redemption is drawing near. The redemption that I have is also drawing near where it will be fully satisfied and I will be made complete, glorified in Christ. So the cross repels the curse. Last thing, the cross gang reveals the gospel. The cross reveals the gospel and we'll finish on this. Numbers chapter 2 verse 32. These are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households. The total being 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now watch this. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards. And they set out. Everyone by his family, or by his family according to his father's household. Look back in verse 2. The sons of Israel shall camp again by his own standard with the banners of their father's household. Gang, these banners, each one of these four camps, Judah. Judah and Ephraim and Reuben and Dan, these four camps camped around the tabernacle, each had a standard, a banner. There was the standard of Judah. There was the standard of Reuben, the standard of Dan, and the standard of Ephraim. And these four standards were four emblems, if you will. Four symbols. Judah had the standard on their standard, the standard of a lion. Because the lion was the symbol of the camp of Judah. Reuben's camp was the symbol of a man. Ephraim's camp was the symbol of a calf or an ox. And Dan's camp was the symbol of an eagle. Some of you have heard a little bit about this before, but listen. These banners are the standard under which the people of Israel were blessed, and it's the same with us. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that as we sit under these four standards, we are blessed in amazing ways. Now, I told you earlier that there is an intrinsic truth in the Scripture. The Scripture proves itself, bears itself out, shows us itself that the four Gospels that we have in the Bible are the accurate four Gospels. Even right within the Scriptures itself, and it's right here in Numbers chapter 2. What are you talking about, Rick? Listen to this. I mentioned before that around 170 A.D., Irenaeus claimed that the four Gospels were the only Gospels. But you want to know what else he said about the four Gospels? He taught that the four Gospels were clearly displayed 1,500 years ahead of time in the four banners of Israel. Judah's banner, Reuben's banner, Ephraim's banner, Dan's banner. These four banners portray the four Gospels. How so? Matthew, Jesus is portrayed in the book of Matthew. He is the king like Judah's lion. He's even called in Revelation the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah had the standard, the banner of a lion. And that banner of a lion portrays, reveals, gives us insight into Jesus the king. And that's who Matthew describes in his gospel. Mark in his gospel describes Jesus the servant. The servant. And Ephraim on their standard had the calf or the ox, that beast of burden. 
Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The book of Mark shows us Jesus the servant as Ephraim, the standard of the calf. The book of Luke, Jesus as the Son of Man. That phrase is used throughout Luke. He is the Son of Man. And Reuben, Reuben on their standard had the face of a man. Interesting. And finally, John in his gospel, John writes of the fullness of deity. Writes that Jesus is God. He is deity. The whole purpose of John's gospel is to put down the teaching of Gnosticism, which in that day was trying to diminish the deity of Christ. And John came right around saying, no, he is deity. And the tribe of Dan had on their standard the face of an eagle, which was a symbol of deity. Now some of you have heard that. But here's the point. The key, gang, the key to receiving all the blessings of God is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As long as these four camps camped under the banner, under their standard, in the order that God laid out, not only were they encamped in the cross, but they were encamped in a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, <laughs> to the Jew first in their camps, and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these these things, these symbols, these wonderful uh, emblems that we see in these first two chapters of Numbers. We thank you, Father, that your word is so trustworthy and true and so right on target. And Lord, I just pray as we continue to study through your word. You will impact the Bridge Christian Fellowship, each one of our lives, with the truth that this is the standard. That we do have the canon of Scripture, the measuring rod, not only by which books are put into the Bible, but the measuring rod by which we are saved. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we proclaim that gospel and thank you for it tonight, that you walked on the earth as a man. You died on the cross. You rose again to live a new life and to call us to resurrection. That is the gospel and we believe in it, we affirm it, and we stand in it. And I pray, Father, that you will cause the gospel not only to be in our hearts, but to be on our lips, even as we go about our lives this week. In Jesus' name.